So instead of a new episode this week, we are treating you to a flashback episode. It's the very second episode we ever recorded and was released on September 7th, 2021. It's one of our favorites. And I love that Kathy is calling it a flashback episode as though we're giving you a gift. But really, we just didn't want to have to do an extra recording over Christmas. So and it is a gift for those who haven't listened. That is true. For those who have join Patreon. And there's a new episode there that was released on Christmas Day. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm Kathy spelled with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Salt Lake City, Utah. Not only is it the largest city in the state, it also serves as its state capital and is home to the world-renowned Great Salt Lake for which the city is named. Salt Lake City offers an impressive list of reasons to visit. It's an ideal place for adventure seekers and nature lovers with five national parks, as well as skiing, snowboarding, mountain biking, and whitewater rafting, just a few of the many things you can do in the Wasatch Mountain Range that borders the city. But in 1983, the Wasatch Mountains became a place of terror for one of its residents. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, on September 26, 1983, 21-year-old Sydney Ann Merrick was working for a construction company. She was on an errand for her boss, delivering an oxygen tank and wiring used for concrete shoring to a project site at Deer Valley Ski Resort in the Wasatch Mountains. To get to Deer Valley, Sydney was driving on Interstate 80 in her small white Datsun car. What's a Datsun? <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who have never heard of Datsun, ask your parents. Or it's a car company that changed its name to Nissan in the early 80s. Okay, so how old do you feel? Dude, old. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Interstate 80 is a main artery connecting the east and west coast of the United States, beginning in San Francisco, California, and ending in Teaneck, New Jersey. So this is a major freeway. And Sydney was on it in Utah, and she was 20 minutes or so east of Salt Lake City. At this location, which is called Parley's Canyon, it's windy. And it's large. It's six lanes, three in each direction, with a concrete divider in the middle. This is not a lightly traveled freeway, and Sydney broke down on a Monday afternoon. Now remember, this is 1983, so there are no cell phones. Sydney's car had overheated, and she had to pull over to the side of the freeway near Parley's Summit. Now Parley's Summit is the highest point. It's about 7,000 feet in elevation, and around it is primarily a rural area. And it's, again, 20 minutes from Salt Lake City. But again, it's a busy freeway, and it wasn't long before a Good Samaritan pulled over and offered to help. It was approximately 2.30 in the afternoon, and the Good Samaritan was driving a black pickup truck with a long flatbed trailer, and he had cables to help her tow her vehicle. He hooked up Sydney's car to the trailer, and with her in the driver's seat of the Datsun as she was being towed away, Wait a second. they moved forward. She was in the car while it was being towed in the driver's seat? Yes. Wait, that's not allowed. It's not allowed, but so what? This is Utah in the early 80s. They could do what they want. <laughs> it's Utah. They don't break the law. But also, you know what it th makes me think? It makes me think that she was not comfortable with the situation. She did not get into his truck with him 
she was being towed in her own vehicle. Oh my gosh, you're exactly right. Yeah. So, so I she think, was listening to some sort of "I'm not sure if I can trust him" type of vibe. That's what I'm to thinking. keep her safe. I wow. Bet. I mean, because good for her. I would be nervous being towed in a car, but I would also be nervous getting into the front seat with a stranger. I'll be honest. I wouldn't let somebody tow me who didn't have an official tow truck I'd called or police. I know. Obviously, she needed the help. Yep. And did it and tried to protect herself in the process. Exactly. Anyway, so he continues driving west on the 80, and he stops near the top at the Summit Park exit. He unhooks her car, and he leaves her at the end of the off-ramp. At approximately 3.30 on Monday, a truck driver came across Sydney's white Datsun. Apparently, the truck driver had stopped near the Summit Park exit to inspect his brakes before going down the other side, and saw the Datsun with the passenger door open and a pair of legs hanging out. He went about his business, checking the brakes, doing his thing. (laughs) Getting his groove back. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But when he got back in the truck, he realized the legs had never moved. So he went over to see if the driver needed some help. That is where he found Sydney, who was sprawled across the front passenger seat, lying in blood, with stab wounds to her neck and chest. She was dead. After the trucker called police, Summit County Sheriff's deputies were dispatched to the scene and immediately started looking for evidence. Her fingernails were bent back as far as they could go without breaking, and the police found blue material under her nails that they thought likely came from a blue t-shirt that the killer would have been wearing. The police at the time theorized that the man who'd pulled over and offered to tow Sydney's car had attempted to abduct her, backed by the evidence that showed Sydney Merrick fought for her life. Mm-hmm. So you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. That was exactly what she was doing by staying in the car. Yeah. But here, here's the thing. Like, honestly, I'm not even critical of her allowing this guy to tow her. No. In the hierarchy of things, the safest thing is a police officer. Then the next is the tow guy. But this guy comes along with a truck and he looks legit and he wants to help her and he has equipment. I don't know. I and just, it's Utah yeah. in the 80s. Exactly. No, I agree. I think I'm one of very few people who would have stopped at the tow truck. But I think a lot of people would have said, he's a worker. He just wants to help. Correct. Yeah. So remember, this was a Monday afternoon and the stabbing occurred at a freeway exit that was visible from both sides of the freeway. According to an article in the Salt Lake Tribune, then Summit County Sheriff Fred Ellie said that traffic is heavy and slow moving at the summit in the afternoon, so they knew it was likely that a motorist or a truck driver would have seen the stabbing. So the Summit County Sheriff issued an appeal for anyone who might have seen an argument or fight near Parley Summit to contact the Summit County Sheriff's Office. Police soon had witnesses who described a, quote, dolled up, shiny black three-quarter ton pickup truck with a long 30-foot flatbed trailer and two blue 55-gallon barrels that were up against the cab. Witnesses also described the trailer as flashy. <laughs> that is definitely a woman describing yes, the trailer as flashy. Definitely not a guy or dolled up. <laughs> it dolled up, exactly. Okay. She fancy. <laughs> Super shiny paint. <laughs> and the truck was said to have writing on it that could have been a company name. A witness who was acquainted with the Apache Company testified that as a passenger in a car traveling through the canyon between 2 to 3 p.m., he saw a one-ton truck with a 30-foot trailer and a bug screen on the front that said Apache towing a light-colored car. Heads up. I had to look up what a bug screen was. Oh, seriously? I don't know what it is. It's it's one of those things that goes on the grill of a truck. Like, if you ever take a long road trip, you look at the front of your truck and you're disgusted by what you see on it. your car? Yeah, exactly. It's something that goes on the front of your grill to stop the bugs. So, like, the bugs are trying to be all up in the grill. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
So in addition to the witness who saw Apache written on the bug screen, another witness had come forward talking about the very distinctive blue 55-gallon drums. And that was how police made the connection. Apparently, those 55-gallon drums are used for hauling oil and are very common through the area seeing it on Interstate 80. Mm -hmm. But Apache is what gave police the clue they needed to try and track down the source because Apache was a company in Evanston, Wyoming, which is on the southwest border with Utah, and it was an oil hauling business. They contacted them. They talked to one of the cone owners who confirmed that the company only had two trucks like that. Like two trucks matching that description? Exactly. Mm. However, one was black and one was red. Mm. So now we know it's the black truck. Yes, they had a driver who had returned to Evanston from California on September 26th, and the truck that was being driven had those barrels that were described. Coincidentally, when they asked who was doing it, it just happened to be the brother of the co-owner of this company. The co-owner that the detectives were talking to? The detectives who they were talking to. Nice. Exactly. Uh -huh. eh, was it nice? Yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. think so. Because yeah. what happened was, yeah. is they did find out from another company employee, is that when the driver of that truck had returned, he had washed the truck thoroughly, inside and out. Of course he did. Yeah, exactly. Not only that, though, he surprisingly got a haircut, needed to neaten himself up and shaved his face, and then he fled. And then he dipped. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You're exactly right. So because of the hard work of the detectives and being able to piece all these together, and of course, the description from the witnesses who are willing to come forward, because you and I both know there are people who just don't want to get involved. I know. And that just isn't right. Mm -mm. But because of this, the Summit County Sheriff's Department filed first-degree murder charges on October 5th, 1983 against Wesley Allen Tuttle. Which is pretty incredible because this is fewer than 10 days after the murder. I mean, if you think about this, because you said that the sheriff turned to the media, I'm assuming he gave interviews to the press or something. Exactly. Because he knew how crowded it was, how crowded the freeway was at that time. And he knew people had paid attention. He knew people saw something. And people read newspapers. Back then they did. You know, I mean, nobody was inundated or over inundated with stuff from the Internet. They read the newspapers. And so that information is like everybody knows by five o'clock that day. Exactly. And it was gold. And we don't know that did Utah at that time have morning and evening newspapers. Yeah, who knows? So people were following this much more closely. Right. Exactly. Wesley Allen Tuttle was 32 years old, had a common law wife and children, and he was a long haul trucker living in Evanston, Wyoming. Now, Tuttle, he was quite the catch. Mm -hmm. He was born mm -hmm. in northern Idaho, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 14 brothers and sisters. Oh, yeah. But ah. Wesley spent his time from the ages of 19 to 31, mostly living in accommodations provided by the state of Idaho. You know oh, what I mean? I, d I know what you mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> from 1970 to 1982, Tuttle was in and out of Idaho prisons. Mm -hmm. He served time for grand larceny. He also had a, a charge of secondary burglary and escape from a state prison. So I want all the listeners to keep this in mind because that will come up again. Mm -hmm. When the police had talked to Wesley's brother, Kenneth, who was the co-owner of Apache. Otherwise known as the snitch. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but because he had talked to his brother, Wesley Tuttle had fled Evanston a few days prior to the charges being filed. This brought several law enforcement agencies together throughout the entire Pacific Northwest, Utah, Nevada, that whole area, so that they could search for him. Someone told him that police were looking for him, so I'm guessing it was a brother or someone like that. Or maybe his common-law wife. True, could the, be. The blushing bride. Maybe he still had a parole officer. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> so on Friday, October 7th, he turned himself in to the FBI office in Spokane, Washington. 
Approximately six months after turning himself in, Tuttle went to trial in April of 1984. And during the guilt phase, there was a jury. And during the penalty phase, there was not. And we'll get into that later. But during the guilt phase of the trial, there were numerous, numerous witnesses. And Merrick's own father and her fiance both testified that the Datsun that she was driving at the time was prone to overheating. A mechanic also testified as an expert witness that on the day that Sydney died, September 26th, it appeared that in fact her Datsun had overheated. And he also testified that the car recently showed signs of having been towed. So he was pointing out fresh scratch marks underneath the front of her vehicle. There was also a medical examiner who testified that the time of death was approximately 2.30 p.m., And there was a doctor who actually accompanied the paramedics to the scene who assisted the medical examiner in this assessment. Many people testified, and it was established that on September 26, Tuttle was returning to Wyoming from having made a delivery in California, and he was in a black Chevrolet 110 truck without a bed that was pulling a 30-foot flatbed trailer. So it was pretty distinctive. As you already said, it had the word Apache on a bug screen. One of the witnesses who was acquainted with the Apache company testified that somewhere between two and three, he did see a dark one-ton truck with a 30-foot trailer and a bug screen that said Apache. There was another couple who were driving around Parley Summit at the same time between 2.15 and 2.30. They also saw a truck with a trailer towing a white car that was occupied by a young woman with hair the same color as the victim's. So these people, they don't know what they're actually seeing. So they're testifying to the best of the recollection, even though they can't necessarily directly identify this victim or this specific vehicle. So they're basically saying, yes, that looks like the car. And yes, this gal had similar hair color. Another man testified that he was driving past Parley Summit on his way to Midway when he saw a flatbed truck parked in front of a small white economy car. He said that photographs of the truck Tuttle was driving appeared to show the truck that he had seen. He said that there was a white woman and a white man with a mustache, collar-length hair, and four days beard growth standing between the car and the truck. He says the man appeared to be tickling the woman, but then became violent and shoved her backwards into the car. When he pushed him violently into the back, I mean, remember we had into the car, we talked about the fact this wasn't a cell phone era. You know, and did here, they pull over? Did they call the cops? And here's the thing. I can't find anything in the court records that suggests they called the police. I mean, this is in the early 80s. Things were different then, but at the same time, they weren't different then. They weren't you know different. What I mean? You saw they, somebody like, doing that? You did something about it. Yeah. So I have no idea if this guy called the police, but I haven't seen anything that suggested he did, Ugh. which bums me out. Absolutely. So another witness testified he saw a man trying to kiss a woman near Parley's Summit off-ramp. And that he recalled seeing a compact foreign car, but he did not remember seeing a truck. Anyway, so there are eyewitness testimonies, a lot of circumstantial evidence. And it sounds like their testimonies are lined up with each other. Yeah, exactly. Nothing is perfect, right? right? So there was one witness named Matt Fish, and he was the witness who sort of nailed the coffin shut by saying, this is the guy I saw. And he pointed to the defendant Tuttle in court and said, he's the one I saw at this off ramp. His testimony was quite controversial because he testified after having been hypnotized. Hypnotized to pull out the details? Well, essentially. Kind of. So here's what he did. He saw what he saw. Then he found out that a woman had been murdered and the police were looking for evidence. So he had his secretary write up his statement. And it was very near in time. 
I want to say within three days, actually, now that I think about it. And then in early October, he goes under hypnosis. And then after that is interviewed by detectives. He comes to the stand. Wait, I'm sorry. Did the police ask him to undergo hypnosis or was this his doing? Honestly, I don't know. Okay. I I really don't know. I didn't see anywhere. I do know that he underwent hypnosis. I have no impression that it was from the police officers. And then when he was interviewed, he was interviewed at the police station by two police officers, one of whom didn't speak at all, and a psychologist. So again, the trial started six months later. And so he gave testimony where he specifically identified this individual, even though he didn't necessarily identify him in his pre-hypnosis statement. So he was able to sit in the courtroom and say, that's the man That's the man. And he was the only one who gave direct testimony. So everything else was circumstantial evidence. This was the only guy who gave direct testimony connecting Tuttle to that specific off-ramp on that specific day. With that specific car. Correct. The state also presented expert testimony that the strand of hair found in the victim's car was compatible with a sample taken from the defendant, Tuttle. And the medical examiner also testified that a knife that was identified as having been owned by Tuttle or similar to a one having been owned by Tuttle could have inflicted Merrick's wounds. They also presented evidence that Tuttle washed the truck that he had been driving, as you stated, immediately upon returning it to Evanston, Wyoming. And again, they admitted evidence that he fled from Wyoming, changed his appearance by cutting his hair and shaving his mustache. So all of those obviously are implications of a guilty conscience. Not the actions of an innocent man? Not the actions of an innocent man. And then, of course, when Tuttle took the stand, as you know, he pretty much shot himself in the foot. Yes, he did. As Kathy with a C said, he was arrogant enough to take the stand in his own defense. He testified that on the day of the murder, he had stopped his truck on the side of the off-ramp to take a nap. After being awakened by the sound of a truck on the exit, he went to go check his tires. He testified that it was then that he noticed a white Datsun behind his truck and that it looked like there was somebody laying on the seat. He could see the legs coming out of the Dotson's passenger side and thought that someone might have been working under the dash. Tuttle testified that he walked back to the car, looked into the driver's side of the car, and saw a body. He then ran around to the passenger side where he saw, quote, a person on the seat full of blood, end quote. He then reached in to check for a pulse. Tuttle testified that, quote, when I touched her, her hand, it came up like a reflex to her face. It startled me and scared me. Question, what did you do then? Answer, I jerked back. I pushed back. I touched her. Question, okay, when you say you touched her, where did you touch her? Answer, on her stomach, I believe. Tuttle further said that his first impression was to get an ambulance, but that after seeing the blood on his hands, he thought that no one would believe him, and he left the scene. So in addition to the implausibility of so much of what he said, To add to that was this notion that he had pulled off to take a nap. He was traveling from Ventura, California, back to Evanston, Wyoming. The trip is roughly 12 hours. From Ventura to the Summit Park exit is 11 hours. So what he was saying is he drove that entire time, 11 hours, pushing through so that he could, what, refresh himself before he had that long hour drive home? Yeah, that's ridiculous. It was stupid. On cross-examination, Tuttle testified that he had pulled off at the Summit Park off-ramp about 2 o'clock, but certainly no later than 2.10 p.m., which was prior to the time eyewitnesses claimed to have seen the truck and trailer towing the car up the summit. 
However, the prosecution introduced phone company records showing that a phone call was made to Apache from a rest stop in Orem, Utah at 1.34 p.m. and that the phone call lasted for two minutes. Tuttle actually admitted to making this call. Another reason you don't get on the stand yourself. Exactly. The prosecution then introduced testimony that it is 45.3 miles between that rest stop and the Summit Park off-ramp. So in order to reach the Summit Park off-ramp at the time he said he did, Tuttle would have had to travel over 80 miles per hour. Tuttle testified that his speed between the rest stop and the off-ramp was between 60 and 70. Therefore, Tuttle could not have arrived at the off-ramp at the time he claimed. From all of the evidence, the jury could infer that the timing was consistent with the prosecution case and that in light of the identification of the truck by a witness, Tuttle had towed the victim up Parley Summit. One of the things I thought was pretty funny when I was reading some of the court documents about Tuttle's testimony and the impeaching witnesses, a bunch of the witnesses basically testified that Tuttle told them his trip was either uneventful or some of them he told that he first fled the crime scene and later from Evanston because he was suspected of running a car off the road. Oh, nice. <laughs> Is that what he called it? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then his attorney called a witness a gentleman who testified that he was at Parley Summit scouting for elk. Now, he said he first saw Tuttle's truck alone on the off-ramp, and approximately 15 minutes later, while this guy is supposedly scouting for elk, he said that he saw a car, just like the victims, appear. Out of magic? Exactly. Okay. And he said that he saw legs extending from the car, and he saw Tuttle whom he recognized mm. running in horror from the small light color vehicle. Or because he'd stabbed her? Yeah. I, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like he's obviously trying to give testimony that's consistent with Tuttle. And here's the funny part. On cross-examination, it was revealed that he had spent two weeks in jail with Tuttle. And he called the prosecution offering to testify against Tuttle in exchange for concessions in his own personal criminal case. So like based on what Tuttle had told him in prison, he was going to turn on him? Exactly. Okay. And so the state was like, no, thanks. So instead, he became a defense witness. Oh, so he lied? <laughs> exactly. And then the state was like, by the way, you're a restricted person and you can't even participate in elk hunting. Isn't that true? And he's like, yeah. You know, so <laughs> it just was like a very weak attempt at presenting a defense witness. So here's an interesting point, and I mentioned this a minute ago, about the penalty phase. I have no idea if Utah is still like this, but at the time, if you are charged with a death penalty case, they have to impanel what they call a death-qualified jury, which means there is a criminal procedure rule that provides that when a capital murder is charged, like in this situation, and a jury is impaneled, the trial court is instructed to remove those who would refuse to vote for the death penalty for reasons of conscience. Are you kidding me? I swear. So they had to make sure they had a jury who would all vote to give the death penalty. Exactly. Like you're not going to be somebody who votes their conscience about a death penalty issue. No, sir, I'm not. Great. You're welcome. So what happens is before the jury was selected, Title's attorney asked the court for a non-death qualified jury. And he basically said, hey, look, 
These death qualified juries are unconstitutional because they're more prone to convict and hang somebody essentially during the trial phase and they don't represent a fair cross-section of the population. And how could you even argue that's a fair cross-section this, of the population? This is, I would be curious to find out what Utah does today. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, obviously in the early 80s, they meant business. A- any of you who are in Utah listening to this, hit us up on Facebook, on our, on our Let group. us know. Yeah, direct messages on Instagram, what have you. Let us know. Exactly. We're super curious. So anyway, they made this motion, the trial court denied the motion, and then his attorney smartly informed the court that in order to have his guilt phase determined by a death-qualified jury, he would waive a jury for the penalty phase and let the court decide the punishment. So remember, he's up for a capital offense here. Well, at least then you have a 50-50 shot with a death-qualified jury, you're pretty much guaranteed a death penalty. I mean, it sounds like it to me. I mean, it sounds like you don't want to be doing any shenanigans in Utah. And maybe that was part of the threat. Who knows? So basically, his lawyer says, forget about it. We will just use the judge, the court, to determine the penalty phase. On May 21st, 1984, the judge sentenced Tuttle to life in prison. And then he was placed in the Utah State Prison on May 24th, 1984. So three days after the penalty phase ended. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. On August 31st, 1984, approximately three months after Tuttle is put in the Utah State Prison System, he is working with a vocational instructor, Gerald Dowson, as an electrician. Because lifers need vocational instruction? I don't know. All right, good for him. Maybe they need something to do in prison. I have no idea. Go Tuttle. So he was assigned to various jobs by Dowson while in the prison. And here's what's interesting. That day, he had no idea what he was going to be doing. No idea where he was going to be placed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He happens to get assigned to repairing lights in the visiting room of the medium security section of the prison. He is there with two people. I can't remember their names. Uh, Daryl Eugene Brady. He was serving time for aggravated kidnapping and robbery. Super nice guy. Totally. Outstanding. Uh And Walter Wood. Oh, even better. He was a convicted murderer for the killing of a Lutheran pastor. Uh, Special place in hell, buddy. We don't like people who kill pastors. No, definitely not. Definitely not. He's in with a good crowd. Yeah, exactly. So they're assigned to the. This isn't even funny. I don't even know why I'm laughing, but it's so Because it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. So they're assigned to take care of the lights in the visiting room in the medium security section. Shortly after 9 a.m. on that day, a Mr. William Campbell, who is an accountant in the administrative office of the prison, hears a lot of construction noise. I'm putting construction noise in quotes. 
at the fire escape door leading to the administrative offices. He waits a while and he continues to hear this construction noise. And then he brings two of his female co-workers to see what's going on. So in case there's something going wrong, he had to just run faster than the two of them? I, I have a feeling like okay, okay, okay. throw the chicks behind you. I don't even know. Maybe run over them. Exactly. I'm not sure. Push them toward the problem. Exactly. Yeah, Exactly. Maybe they'll nag the crooks to death. I don't know. Anyway, so he opens the door and he sees one person in civilian overalls with two prison inmates, one of whom is Mr. Tuttle. What do they do? They walk right past him through the door that he just opened. They walk through the administrative offices and outside. Okay, wait. So Mr. Campbell, that's his name, right? Uh-huh. Mr. Campbell sees at least two prisoners. Mr. Campbell's the accountant. So, right. Yeah. But sees two prisoners. Yeah. I'm guessing he knows that overalls aren't guard I uniforms. Yeah, who knows? And did he do anything? Did he call somebody to check? Did he sound an alarm? I don't think so. Tuttle and his two BFFs that day walk out the gates of the prison that happened to be open that day. So everything that happened that day was just a crime of opportunity. Complete crime of opportunity. They had no idea where they were going to be assigned. And they're like, hey, that guy has totally. I have no idea when he was assigned to the visiting room to do the electrical there. But by 9 a.m., this guy's butt is out. He's free. (laughs) He's free. Okay. so one of the funniest things about this, Kathy, though, is that I read that after this had happened, the director of prisons for Utah, he actually launched an inquiry into finding out what happened. How did they escape? (laughs) I know. So he could have called us. Let's see. I would like to be a consultant on that case, please. My hourly fee is $400. There you go. (laughs) Exactly. If you're going to do that, don't sign maximum security prisoners who are lifers to a visitor's area, let alone medium security, and perhaps train your prison personnel to pick up a phone. Yeah. And maybe not push the female co-workers in front of them. Or lock the door. (laughs) Crazy. Crazy. I know. (laughs) So I know that Brady and Wood, they were caught within like 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And I think Brady was caught like down by the river. (laughs) It's like a movie. He caught him by the banks of the river. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Exactly. Sounds like an idyllic location. But anyway. Exactly. He was lounging, sunbathing. (laughs) So they were caught within 24 hours. But Tuttle actually, he took off. Mm -hmm. He was gone. Yeah. Idaho police were actually brought in to assist in the manhunt when a van that Tuttle, they believed he had stolen, was abandoned in the city of Rupert, Idaho. Rupert is close to the Utah-Idaho border, but more importantly, Minidonka County Sheriff John Fisher said at the time that Tuttle had friends, relatives, and an ex-wife living in the Rupert area. Got to assume he was on good terms with the ex-wife because otherwise she would have been the first one to turn him in. Right, (laughs) exactly. But once again, they all converged on Rupert. Tuttle stayed one step ahead of the law, and he wasn't caught until February 7th of 1985, almost five months after escaping. So how was he caught? I love this story. He's tooling down the highway in Nevada. Nevada state troopers pull him over. Why? He didn't have a license plate on the back of his Mm -hmm. car. Mm -hmm. Gotta love it. The troopers pull him over, and he used the alias of Mike Eugene Van Weller. Unfortunately for him, it was an alias he had used before. So when the troopers called it in, it was flagged. So FBI agents went to the scene and were able to identify him as being Wesley Tuttle. So back to Draper, Utah, he went. Prison door slammed shut. 
On April 12, 1989, the Supreme Court of Utah issued their opinion in the appellate case four years prior. Here's what they did. They basically took the three issues, one of which was a denial of a jury trial, and they dismissed that immediately. And they said, hey, in the penalty phase, you waive jury. That's your fault. We're not going to hear an appeal on that. And then there were two other issues on appeal, the second of which involved hypnosis testimony. Now, if you recall, Matt Fish was the gentleman who is the only witness who connected Tuttle directly to the scene of the off-ramp where the murder occurred. What happened was two to three days after the murder, Matt Fish realizes that he's a witness. So he dictates a memo to his secretary. And the memo was introduced at trial. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he describes what he sees. He describes the truck. And then he writes, quote, they passed me going up Parley's Canyon. I noticed the girls seemed very uncomfortable. The truck driver seemed to be going fast. I repassed them at the top of the summit and they were pulled off at the Summit Park exit right at the crest of the hill. The truck was still connected to the car and the driver of the truck walked back to the car, opened up the driver's side door, put his hand on the roof and started talking. Okay, that is a total aggressive move. Oh, totally. Remember, she's being towed in this vehicle and she is in her vehicle and he goes back to her vehicle and essentially puts his hand on the door and the roof. It's a very, I consider it to be a very aggressive move as well. Absolutely. And not only that, she probably looked uncomfortable because she was being towed by a stranger and mm -hmm. he was driving super fast up a hill. Totally. So he says, that's the last thing I saw. Then in this memo, he says, the guy was medium build with a dark baseball cap, wearing a light blue shirt. He had a scrungy appearance. That's what it said in the memo. So on October 4th, 1983, Matt Fish undergoes hypnosis. He is questioned by a clinical psychologist. He is questioned by a police detective. And then this other stuff comes out, right? So then he goes to the trial in April of the following year. I think it started on April 18th of 1984. And he testifies to all of these things. And he specifically identifies Tuttle. Again, he's the only witness who connects Tuttle directly with direct evidence to the scene. Lots of circumstantial evidence, but only guy with direct evidence. The defense attorney's jumping up and down saying, hey, wait a second, this isn't right, blah, 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 blah. The trial court takes the statement by the secretary and admits it into evidence so that the jury can weigh the pre-hypnosis testimony and the post-hypnosis testimony, essentially. So they can pretty much figure out what they think is true. What they think is true, what they think is exaggerated or whatever. Isn't it true, though, that he knew a lot of the same details as the rest of the witnesses? Well, he did. He did. He knew a lot of the same details. Like pre-hypnosis. Yeah. His testimony is fairly pivotal because it's the only direct evidence okay. placing Tuttle there for sure. During the trial, the defense is unhappy, to say the least. So the defense wants to put on an expert to talk about the unreliability of hypnosis. And the trial court says no. You have to choose. You already have an expert on the unreliability of eyewitness testimony. You have to pick. It's kind of the same thing. Again, this is the first time the Utah Supreme Court has ruled on the issue of hypnosis. And so what they do is they do what all of the courts do on unique issues, and they look to other jurisdictions. Makes sense. Prior to this, there was an upswing in using hypnosis and considering it scientific and allowing admissibility. At this time, the trend had gone the other way. Our minds are not like cameras that take pictures of things and regurgitate them later under hypnosis. 
our minds are much more suggestive. And so the case law trended away from the use of hypnosis saying, this is not scientific evidence. And so the court basically said, look, the trial court erred. It should have allowed the defendant to be able to put on a defense expert talking about the unreliability of the hypnosis testimony because hypnosis testimony and eyewitness testimony unreliability are two separate things. So the court erred. However, it was harmless error. There was no causal connection between this error and the conviction because there was so much other circumstantial evidence to convict this guy. So the Court of Appeal basically regurgitated all the reasons that he should have been convicted. They talked about the disguise, the fleeing the jurisdiction. They talked about all the eyewitness testimony, all the circumstantial evidence that suggested this guy was the murderer. Right. So the Court of Appeal said, yeah, it was a mistake, but it was harmless. No harm, no foul. Third issue on appeal, the defense basically said, the way the penal code is written on first-degree murder, any single murder can fall under first-degree murder. It's vague, essentially. So what it says is the knowing and intentional killing is first degree murder and it is consequently punishable by the death penalty if, quote, the homicide was committed in an especially heinous, atrocious, cruel, or exceptionally depraved manner and of which must be demonstrated by physical torture, serious physical abuse, or serious bodily injury of the victim before death, unquote. So the defense is saying, look, any murder can fall within the definition of first-degree murder because serious bodily injury is going to result from most acts that cause death. Exactly. And so the Court of Appeal said, this is not unconstitutionally vague on its face. However, as applied to these facts, no, it doesn't apply. There's no evidence that there was any easier way to kill her at the time. Any easier way. Essentially. Doesn't that sound crazy? It does. So what the Supreme Court of Utah winds up doing is saying, although the facts of Sidney Merrick's case don't fit murder one, they do fit murder two. So they send the case back down to the trial court with instructions, vacate the conviction for murder one, enter a conviction for murder two. Well, here's the thing. He has to be resentenced now. Murder two carries with it a new sentence of five to life. So Tuttle is resentenced by the trial court and now gets to go to parole hearings and try to get out of jail. I'm not going to get into the federal appeals. He did a federal appeal. It's called a habeas writ. Not going to get into that. But he was really doing his best to exhaust every judicial remedy he had. And frankly, the guy seems to have nine lies as it comes to the judicial system. In January of 1991, so a few months prior to this, he stabs an inmate with a knife in the back. Was this because of compulsion? <laughs> well, he says it was in self-defense. In so, the back. Exactly. In November of 1991, he is transferred to prison in Montana, essentially for his own protection. In September of 1994, Tuttle sends a letter to the Board of Pardons maintains his innocence in the 1983 stabbing death of Sidney Ann Merrick. At this time, he was getting some support. And I'll get to that support in a minute. The board chairman, Mike Sibbett, said that the denial of guilt shows that Tuttle has not accepted responsibility for his crime. Tuttle reminded the board that he's appealing the convictions. 
Despite the fact that Tuttle is appealing his convictions, Sibbett said the board doesn't find guilt or innocence. Quote, this board views Mr. Tuttle as a murderer, unquote. Tuttle was absent from the hearing because he was moved to a Montana prison after pleading guilty to stabbing another inmate with a handmade knife in January of 1991. He was moved to Montana. This hearing is taking place in Utah, the home of his original conviction. Relatives of Tuttle's former common law wife were at Wednesday hearing and said he didn't get a fair trial. He says he'll never admit he did it, said one woman. Apparently, some residents in Montana feel the same way as Tuttle's family does. Sibbett, again, he is the board chairman, says that in addition to many letters of support, Montana residents signed a petition on Tuttle's behalf. Does he have some like celebrity benefactor there? I mean, Montana has a lot of second homes. It totally sounds like some like a cause that a celebrity would champion without knowing all the facts of it. I have no idea. Obviously, this got a lot of press. What made the Montana residents sign a petition for something that didn't happen in their state? I have no idea. I do know that Tuttle had an attorney from Salt Lake City named Kenneth Brown, and Mr. Brown strongly believed in his client's innocence. And he believed that for four primary reasons, all of which came out at trial. The first of which was there was a handprint that did not belong to Tuttle. It did not belong to Sidney Merrick. And it was on the bumper located in the area where her vehicle would have been towed. And it was never identified. The second thing was that there were fingernails. Sidney fought for her life. Her fingernails were bent back. But there was testimony that Tuttle had no scratches on his arms or anywhere else that was visible. The third thing was hairs. There was one hair identified as being consistent with Tuttle's, but there were other hairs embedded in Sydney's blood and in the vehicle that were never identified. Well, I think it's important to note, though, because remember, this is 1983, and we already mentioned there were no cell phones, but there also was no DNA testing. That was a few years off. That's very true. And the last thing that his attorney points out is that there was a witness who was actually an engineer who described a box trailer towing a vehicle that was similar to Sidney Merrick's with a male and a female standing next to it. So that is a description unlike anything related to the Tuttle vehicle. I strongly suspect that at any opportunity, Mr. Brown would bring up these things that he thought showed his client's innocence. And so by the time he's in a Montana prison, but they're doing parole hearings in Utah, maybe there is some sympathy. Maybe this guy, Kenneth Brown, has done a good job getting the word out. Well, and I'm sure in 1983, Salt Lake City was also kind of a small town. So people probably knew Sidney Merrick or knew somebody who knew her. So it was a little more personal to them. Back to the parole hearing that I just mentioned. Mr. Sibbett, again, he's the chairman of the Board of Pardons, has a quote that I just love. An article written in the Deseret News by Amy Donaldson regarding the Board of Pardons hearing that I just told you about, Sibbett basically said that he would take the case under advisement, but told relatives and friends to anticipate a re-hearing date well into the future. <laughs> So we can all read through the lines. Hope his family could too. Exactly. So basically he was saying, thanks, but no thanks. Don't believe him. Yeah. He's staying in prison. He's not taking responsibility for anything. Forget about it. As we've listened to this whole entire thing, it's talking about how lucky Tuttle got at every turn. Every turn. Mm -hmm. 
He goes to prison. He escapes. He goes back to prison. He gets convicted of murder. He escapes. He comes back. His appeal is granted and his sentence is reduced. So he actually has a shot at parole. Finally, finally, in 2007, his luck ran out. In 1994, Congress passed the DNA Identification Act. This is what led to CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System, which is the FBI's national database of DNA profiles of convicted offenders. In 2002, Idaho detectives had submitted DNA evidence for a murder that had occurred in Boise in 1982. In 2007, it came back with a name, Wesley Allen Tuttle. The 1982 murder had shocked the Boise community. A 14-year-old developmentally challenged girl named Lisa Lynn Chambers was walking to school on November 10th and disappeared. She was found in a cornfield near Lake Hazel in Boise two weeks later by two hunters on Thanksgiving Day. An autopsy determined that she had been strangled with her own shoelace and sexually assaulted. <sighs> According to a South Idaho Press article in November 1983, this was a year after Lisa's death, as many as 13 detectives were initially working on trying to find who killed Lisa. Then Ada County Sheriff's Sergeant John Bryant had said, quote, it's an unusual case. Lisa led a very strict routine life. She was a slow learner and she didn't go to friends' homes. Her whole life revolved around school and home. As is usually the case, investigators first focused on the parents, Charles and Nancy Chambers. When her body was discovered, the Chambers hired an attorney who advised them not to speak with the detectives. And I don't understand this because I do know that parents are usually the first suspects, but usually the parents want to go and talk to the police to get themselves out of the way so that they can focus on other people. Yeah. And they didn't do this. They had two sons at the time who were 16 and 10. And after Lisa's disappearance, the sheriff's department said its investigation had led officials to fear for the boy's safety. So they were sent to a foster home. They were finally allowed to go back to their parents' home in July of 1983. As time went by, Sergeant Bryant said that he and two other detectives worked on the case only as leads came up. And despite following all leads, eventually all suspects in the area were ruled out. Interestingly, Tuttle was actually considered a person of interest from the beginning. A witness told police about seeing a girl who matched Lisa Chambers' description near the Western Idaho Fairgrounds next to a truck registered by Tuttle. This is where she was ultimately found. So even though Lisa's walk to school passed by the neighborhood where Tuttle lived, and if you'll recall, back in 1982, Tuttle had just been released from Idaho prison. Yep. The Ada County Sheriff Gary Rainey in 2007 said that detectives had dismissed the tip after failing to find any connection between Tuttle and the Chambers family, in addition to the sighting being so far away from where Lisa actually lived. Even though years had passed since this has happened, the detectives were still on the case and still always trying to find that person. When I mentioned that convicted offenders had to give samples of their DNA, it was done by saliva. Now, saliva isn't the best way to have DNA taken. So when they had this match, detectives then had to submit a search warrant to have blood drawn to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Wesley Allen Tuttle belonged to the DNA that had been found in Lisa Chambers' underwear. God love these detectives. No kidding. As Kathy had said, Wesley Tuttle was sent to Montana in 1991 for his safety after he had knifed an inmate in the back in self-defense. Mm-hmm. He actually remained there for just over 15 years before I guess they deemed it safe enough for him to go back to Utah. So in 2006, he was back in Draper, Utah, and the blood match comes up out of CODIS in mm -hmm. 2007. 
Officials in Utah gladly extradite him to Idaho so that Ada County can prosecute him for the death of Lisa Lynn Chambers. However, he faces the death penalty, and he doesn't want to do that. He does not want to have a chance of death at all. He agreed to plead guilty to Lisa's death in exchange for having the death penalty taken off the table. After pleading guilty to save his own hide and get life without the possibility of parole rather than the death penalty, Wesley Allen Tuttle remains in an Idaho prison for the rest of his life. Exactly where he should be. Agreed. Thanks for listening to us. In addition to the reviews, please hit us up on all of our socials. We are at Killer Destinations Podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. If you have anything to say, any cases you might want to suggest, or just want to chat, please let us know.